question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca, available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. This year, the city of Vancouver marks the 125th anniversary of one of Canada's most iconic places, and that's Stanley Park. On the program, the third and final installment of our three-part series, Making Stanley Park. We'll continue to critically unpack the history and making of this important and uh, symbolic urban space. My special guest today is Sean Courage, and he's the author of a recently published book, Inventing Stanley Park. How might Stanley Park be the city's most unnatural place? And how have humans worked to make Stanley Park what it is today? We'll look at these questions and more. Stay, stay with us. This is The City here on CITR. And in early 2006, a powerful windstorm ripped through Vancouver's Stanley Park. The storm transformed the city's most treasured landmark into a tangle of splintered trees and shattered a decades-old vision of the park as a timeless virgin wilderness. And in his book, Inventing Stanley Park, Sean Courage traces how this tension between popular expectations of idealized nature and the volatility of complex ecosystems helped shape the landscape of one of the world's most famous urban parks. Sean Courage's book not only depicts the natural and cultural forces that shape the park's landscape, but it also examines the roots of our complex relationship with nature. And Sean Courage is assistant professor in the Department of History at York University. He's also the host and producer of Nature's Past, the Canadian Environmental History Podcast. And I spoke with Sean Courage in September at his home in Toronto. You write, the creation of Stanley Park imposed a new set of ideas and values, but far from eliminating the human presence in the peninsula, it required a massive human effort. Regulations governed the use of the park and changed human relations with nature. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, advocates called for both protecting the park from human intervention and improving it via the same means. And despite the seemingly stark contrast between the park and the city, Stanley Park was woven into the infrastructure of Vancouver's urban environment. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, these tensions and, and, and what you mean? Yeah, of course. This was one of the most interesting things I found about the, uh, the history of this park and the history of the relationship between people and nature in this park. I think that when we think of parks in the present, we often see them as places where we are preserving nature from human influence. Um, but what I found in the case of Stanley Park was the, uh, the idea of the park and the creation of the park actually ushered in 
some of the most substantial human uh, modifications of the environment of this peninsula in its entire history. <clears throat> what I tried to do in the book was look at the history of human relations with this peninsula um, over the course of the entirety of its history from its first settlement by Coast Salish people uh, many thousands of years ago right up to the present. And so I was able to see all of the different ways in which human communities have interacted with the forest, the shores, the water, the animals uh, on the Stanley Park Peninsula. The most extraordinary thing was that people changed this peninsula the most in order to make it a park. Prior to uh, the official opening of the park in 1888, it had been used as uh, a, a very a long-standing uh, village for um, Musqueam, uh, Sawatooth, and uh, Squamish people. Uh, in the mid-19th century, it was used for uh, industrial natural resource uh, activities, including mining and logging. Uh, and it was used as a settlement site for um, European and Asian colonists. But in 1888, when it became a park, people did a lot more things to the, this peninsula than they had ever done before. The most concrete was laid, the most uh, building was done within the park, the most trees were cut down in the park. More trees were taken down in Stanley Park after it became a park than any other time uh, in its history. Hmm. You ask, uh, contrary to historical evidence, um, really why Canadians believe the nature in Stanley Park is pristine or ancient, um, and you have a number of, of reasons. Uh, how do you explain this? Well, it's, it's one of the main historical problems at the center of my book. Um, why in North America do we think of parks as uh, places that preserve time? Um, uh, and this was something that really attracted me to studying parks, that they were more than just places that we thought of as being uh, nature preserves where pieces of nature were protected from human influence. They were also thought of um, over the course of the 20th century as places uh, um, frozen in time. Um, and it's, it's a problem or an, a concept that goes beyond just Vancouver and Stanley Park. Um, it's true th throughout most of Canada, especially in the case of the national parks, as well as in the United States. Um, some call scholars refer to this as a, the uh, nature myth at the heart of North American ideas of nature, uh, that there is a, a pristine, unimpaired environment that represents a pre-colonial um, wilderness. That is to say, uh, a, a nature uh, that was not altered by uh, Euro-American or Euro-Canadian hands. Um, and in a way, this also essentializes the experiences of First Nations people with uh, the environment and implies that they uh, made no modifications to their natural surroundings, um, which of course is not true. And that's, I think, what makes um, this idea a nature myth. Um, there never was a pre-colonial wilderness of Stanley Park, and Stanley Park is quite exemplary in this case because the modern forest that we would recognize as a northwest coast coniferous forest never existed without humans modifying it. Uh, prior to the human settlement of Stanley Park, Stanley Park was uh, submerged uh, underneath uh, the ocean uh, and rose after the retreat of um, continental glaciers many thousands of years ago. So the idea that there was a pristine environment that was never changed by people um, is mythological. Uh, now, why this idea persists uh, is difficult to answer. Uh, there's obviously broader cultural reasons that go well beyond Vancouver and even British Columbia. Uh, but specifically in the case of Stanley Park, I think um, landscape uh, and uh, landscape art played a really uh, big role uh, in shaping how we think about nature. Um, Stanley Park's forests 
had been modified over the course of, of most of the 20th century um, by park engineers and foresters, um, and modified in such a way uh, to appear uh, what's called naturalistic, uh, that is, to appear as though it sprung from the hands of nature rather than the hands of man. Um, and that uh, landscape is quite persuasive and had the effect of um, producing this sense that the peninsula was timeless. Uh, it's difficult for us to see change in uh, the natural environment, uh, in part because in many instances it occurs very slowly. There are, of course, extraordinary landscape changes like storms, which are very prevalent in Stanley Park's history. Um, but when we look out at the forest of the park, it's difficult to see or understand that those trees have their own 20th century history, that they aren't, in fact, ancient and timeless, but that they change over time, they grow, uh, and they die. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you more specifically about um, really the use of of um, the idea of wilderness or, or nature and sort of this... Um, untouched, pristine, or in the case of Stanley Park, this virgin forest, um, sort of this language that's used. And as part of it, too, um, and a lot of people have argued this, I'm just curious, um, your take on it, like, is this a political strategy to also, in a way, dispossess um, indigenous peoples from land and, and placing them in a category of being unmodern and therefore um, they are closest to nature and therefore sort of these contradictions become apparent when you have something like Stanley Park that on the one hand is seen as this pristine wilderness um, and on the other hand you have colonial Vancouver that um, is, is a landscape and a land that can be um, taken because it, it needs to be modernized. Yeah, I mean, uh, the historian, I think, who's done the most work on this for the Vancouver area is Jean Barman, um, and she talks about this as a process of erasure of indigenous landscapes, um, and I think that's certainly true in the case of Stanley Park. Um, the park and the creation of the park, park played an enormous role in the dispossession of Coast Salish people uh, from their land in the Lower Mainland, and the creation of the park itself um, erased uh, not only the historical and ancient presence of indigenous people on that peninsula, but reconstructed an image that made it appear as though uh, no one had ever lived there before. Um, Now, uh, strictly speaking, however, the process of dispossession occurred before the park was created. Um, Coast Salish people were, uh, I guess, officially dispossessed in 1876 during the course of a uh, commission um, on the part of the provincial government and the federal government to... uh, Uh, survey the province of British Columbia and uh, determine the reserve needs of the First Nations of the province. When the commissioners came to Vancouver, uh, or what would become Vancouver in 1876, they met with the villagers who lived at the village in Stanley Park, which was called uh, Woi Woi. And they actually recommended that an Indian reserve be established on the Stanley Park Peninsula of between seven to eight acres in size. It's a a relatively small uh, reserve. Um, And the provincial government rejected this proposal. It didn't uh, provide any reason, so we can only speculate um, uh, from a historical perspective why this was. But that was the act that officially dispossessed indigenous peoples of their land uh, rights to the Stanley Park Peninsula. Mm -hmm. But after the park was created, the the actual physical uh, displacement of indigenous people took place. So 
the main body of villagers at Woi Woi were driven out of the park um, in 1887, 1888, during the construction of the park road, which went through the village, and in some cases went straight through some of the houses in the village. Um, and then the final residents uh, who were uh, evicted from the park were a community of European and Indigenous mixed uh, heritage families that lived at Brockton Point. Uh, and they were formally evicted uh, during the course of a series of trials that took place between 1923 and 1925, uh, and then uh, they were uh, removed by 1931. Uh, the process of removal uh, was delayed by several years. And in fact, the last resident to live in the park um, uh, did so until 1958. It was a man named Tim Cummings. He and his sister Agnes were uh, permitted by the park board to live in their cottage in Stanley Park uh, to live out the remainder of their lives there. Agnes died, I think, in 1956, and Tim died in 1958. Hmm. I want to ask you uh, to talk also about the the anti-modernist movement um, and as well as the American conservation movement and and really the influence this played on the creation of urban parks, um, not mm-hmm. only in a Canadian context but also in an American context. Yeah. I mean, anti-modernism um, was less of a, a movement than, I think, conservation, but we can think of anti-modernism as a kind of cultural phenomenon of the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, the the tricky part to anti-modernism, of course, is that anti-modernism supported modernity. Um, and this is maybe just a bad, bad terminology on the part of scholars, uh, but the idea of anti-modernism um, was that uh, modern life, and particularly urban life, at the turn of the century uh, was somehow sapping a kind of energy or um, uh, cultural force out of men in particular, but also women, uh, that they derive from nature. Uh, that uh, cities and the growth of industrial cities was somehow distancing us from nature and depriving us of, in some cases, uh, very primal needs to commune with the environment. When we think about anti-modernism, uh, I think we think about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, and other leaders of the American conservation movement who were advocates of the idea of urban uh, dwellers getting out into nature, uh, either through hunting or camping or mountaineering or fishing, uh, in order to have experiences with the natural environment that would rejuvenate them so that they can be even more effective in their urban modern lives. So in 1888, when Stanley Park opened to the public, the mayor, David Oppenheimer, gave a speech to commemorate the occasion. Uh, And in his speech, he made direct reference to some of these ideas that we would associate with anti-modernism. He said that Stanley Park was sort of a crucial part of Vancouver's urban development because he thought that all cities required a large natural space for people to uh, go outside and have breathing space. And parks at this time were often described as the lungs of cities. So uh, this is sort of the terminology that uh, Frederick Law Olmsted used in reference to uh, parks in New York City, that all modern industrial cities required uh, green space within it to cleanse the air and to provide um, space for people to commune with nature, and that the parks weren't uh, spaces to undermine urban growth and development, and they weren't the opposite of Uh, urban centers. They were actually crutches or critical infrastructure to support industrial development in cities. The definition of public um, throughout the course of Stanley Park's history um, changed in in two key ways that uh, you talk about that altered um, 
how humans interacted with nature in Stanley Park. And um, the second is redefining the public, which required um, the imposition of a new environmental ethic. Can you talk about the idea of the public within, um, within Stanley Park's history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, things I was really interested in in studying a park is this idea of public space, because parks are, uh, in many ways, the most prominent examples of public space in cities outside of sidewalks and, and squares and public buildings. And this idea of public space is something I think in the present that we kind of take for granted that we understand its meaning, but it's actually uh, something that's quite complex and um, historically specific uh, to the period, um, the specific period when Stanley Park was created. Uh, at the turn of the century, cities across North America were engaged in a process of constructing public space and also defining what public space meant. So in the book, I argue that uh, there were two concurrent processes of creating public space. The first was uh, determining um, a, a legal governing authority for that space. Uh, and the second was determining the rules for how public space could be used. And so what I meant by that uh, in the book is that public space is not common space. It's not space that anybody can go into and do anything. It's highly regulated space for a particular defined public. And the creation of Stanley Park uh, actually involved a very complicated legal process of determining who got to govern this peninsula. Uh, when it became a park in 1888, when it opened, um, the park was administered by uh, an appointed body called the Park Committee. Uh, the city appointed a series of prominent individuals to sit on this park committee to administer uh, uh, the park. And it did so under the auspices of a lease uh, or an agreement with the federal government uh, to use this peninsula as a public park. The reason that the city needed the federal government's permission is that prior to 1888, uh, Stanley Park was a government reserve. Um, it had been a government reserve established when British Columbia was a uh, crown colony of the British government. And that reserve was transferred to the authority of the Canadian government in Ottawa when British Columbia joined Confederation in 1871. Now, that's the, the law. What the British Columbia government believed was that the reserve actually had been transferred to the British Columbia government in Victoria. And so for many years and through a series of important uh, court cases in the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Canada and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was the highest court of the British Empire, uh, the province of British Columbia and the federal government of Canada fought over who actually controlled Stanley Park. And this had very direct implications for the city of Vancouver because it would determine who would compose the park board. Uh, the federal government wanted to appoint its own appointees to the Vancouver Park Board to govern Stanley Park. The provincial government wanted to govern uh, the park board itself. Uh, and it really wasn't until 1908 that the matter was resolved and a formal lease from the federal government to the city of Vancouver uh, was established and the city of Vancouver gained authority to govern Stanley Park. The main issue that the city was concerned with uh, in terms of governing authority uh, was the families at Brockton Point, uh, the uh, Aboriginal European uh, mixed uh, heritage community that lived in a village at Brockton Point. 
since the park opened, the uh, city wanted to evict the people who lived there. Um, and, but it, they couldn't do so until they had clear legal authority over that property. And so in the years between um, 1888 when the park opened and 1923, that authority was, was quite unclear. And it wasn't until 1923 that the city felt comfortable with its legal authority to initiate formal eviction proceedings. Um, and so that really illustrates how complicated the meaning of public is and how we can kind of take it for granted. And then the other side to this, of course, is that once a, a governing authority is determined for public space, that authority gets to determine who gets to use it and how it's used. Uh, it creates rules for what you can do in that park uh, and what you can't do. Mm -hmm. So you can't cut down a tree in Stanley Park and haul it away and use it as fuel wood. You can't plant crops in Stanley Park and harvest them. You can't uh, let a cow go free and graze in the forest of Stanley Park. All of these were uh, traditionally common practices in Stanley Park before 1888, and in fact, a little bit after as well. Uh, but when it became a park, the park board, through its bylaws, imposed a new kind of ethic or a new kind of relationship to nature, whereas prior to the park board's rules and regulations, uh, humans would use nature in the park in a kind of consumptive manner. They could use wood for building materials or for fuel wood. They could use the nutrients of the soil to raise food. They could use the uh, scrub in the bush as grazing feed for cattle and other animals. But after it became a park, the idea of a park excluded these activities. The idea of the park was to reserve public space for non-consumptive recreational uses. So all of those previous traditional uses were exempted. And how much of this do you think um, was rooted in a, a class um, ideal of, of, or a class-based ideal of how this space was to be used, sort of a normative idea of how it ought to be used, and perhaps the upper classes thought that it was not meant to be used for um, chopping down some wood to put in your stove at home, whereas perhaps people... Um, who are working class or working poor, this was sort of a, a way of survival almost and a space for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, that's certainly an element of it. So um, middle and elite class Vancouverites saw public space not as a place where you would engage in these kinds of consumptive resource harvesting activities for self-provisioning, um, but as places where you would use it for leisure and recreation. And of course, that represented particular class perspectives. Only certain Vancouverites had the time to go for walks on uh, pathways in Stanley Park or to use the bridle path for horse riding uh, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. If you were poor, uh, fuel wood was a really important resource that you uh, required, and, and throughout parts of the Lower Mainland, you could go on to unoccupied uh, lots of land and harvest wood uh, for fuel wood. And these practices, of course, were excluded. The ability to exclude those practices obviously represents particular class interests. You don't need to harvest your own fuel wood because you have a cash income to buy fuel wood. Um, then, obviously, the exclusion of that activity wouldn't have as great an impact on your life. Now, this uh, change in the use of Stanley Park, of course, we can extrapolate to many other parts of Vancouver and other Canadian and American cities during the constraints were imposed on Canadians and Americans, uh, ordinary Canadians and Americans, on their abilities to self-provision, the ability to grow your own food, 
for the ability to harvest your own fuel. Um, and this is part of the industrialization of Canada and the United States and the transition to a near total cash economy, whereby the only way that you could feed, clothe, and heat yourself uh, was by earning a wage. You talk about a number of reasons um, for the creation of Stanley Park, and I'm now taking a, a bit of a step back. Um, but but can you talk about why and and how Stanley Park was created and, and really who was behind um, the impetus or the push for the creation of this large urban park? Okay. I'll start with the, the how. Yeah. Um, the park was uh, officially created uh, or established in 1887. Um, the year prior, the City Council of Vancouver uh, passed a resolution to request permission to use the peninsula adjacent to downtown Vancouver for a public park. Prior to that, it had been a government reserve um, controlled by the federal government of Canada. Uh, and it received permission in uh, 1887 to use the park as a public park. The city spent uh, about a year and a half preparing uh, a roadway and a bridge uh, to cross Coal Harbor and to uh, circumnavigate Stanley Park before opening the park to the public because, of course, uh, it had previously been a, a very densely forested peninsula that was uh, cut off by water uh, at Coal Harbor, so it was, it was virtually inaccessible until a bridge was built across Coal Harbor and a roadway was built. So before 1888, that's the work that the city council uh, was involved in. And why did they do this? Well, there's a number of reasons. Um, there are some reasons that are pragmatic, and there are some reasons that I think are uh, more aesthetic or artistic. The pragmatic reasons for creating the park were related to real estate values in the city of Vancouver. And this is common in uh, many other North American cities that establish large uh, urban parks. And in fact, it was one of the impetuses for creating urban parks in the 19th century. Following the creation of Central Park in New York City in the mid-19th century, um, uh, urban land developers realized that parks were attractive amenities uh, to property owners and that the neighboring uh, properties uh, around surrounding Central Park uh, increased in value tremendously after the park was created. Uh, and so other cities, especially newer Western cities, attempted to mimic this phenomenon. In Vancouver, the land that is adjacent to Stanley Park today was uh, owned primarily, almost exclusively, by the Canadian Pacific Railway Corporation. Um, and so in 1886, a real estate um, uh, speculator and agent of the Canadian Pacific Railway, a man named Arthur Wellington Ross, uh, used his political connections on the city council to persuade the city council to petition the federal government to turn the peninsula into a public park. Ross was a close associate with a man named Lachlan Hamilton, who was an employee of the Canadian Pacific Railway, and he also was a city councillor on the first city council in Vancouver. Ross was also the brother-in-law of the first mayor of Vancouver, Malcolm McLean. And so he had these two really important connections with the city council that allowed him to get his proposal through the council uh, to turn this into a park. Ross uh, owned property in the West End, and uh, the CPR owned both the rest of the property in the West End and stood to benefit from the property increases. The result of this was that the West End became Vancouver's first elite residential neighborhood. So today we often think of Shaughnessy um, and other parts of South Vancouver as being kind of elite residential areas with very large mansions. 
but the original uh, mansion neighborhood of Vancouver was the West End before it was eventually replaced by uh, the forest of apartment buildings that we see today. Hmm. So that's kind of the pragmatic reason for the creation of Stanley Park. But I think there was also an aesthetic or an artistic reason for the creation of this park. And I hadn't expected to find this, but when I was working in the city archives researching uh, this book, I came across a series of watercolor paintings of uh, the Stanley Park Peninsula from 1885. And the uh, artist who created the paintings was Lachlan Hamilton, the same city councillor and CPR surveyor who had petitioned uh, or had put forth the motion to petition the federal government to use this peninsula as a park. Hamilton uh, created these paintings um, sort of at, at dusk usually uh, and in the early evenings uh, after he was finished doing some of his survey work uh, downtown. He had been hired by the Canadian Pacific Railway to draft the, uh, the road network for downtown Vancouver. But in his off time, he was doing watercolor paintings of the Stanley Park Peninsula. And I think that in a way this illustrated um, some of his admiration for the aesthetic qualities of the peninsula, that he had a kind of reverence for the beauty of the forest. And so even though Hamilton was an employee of the CPR, an associate of um, uh, Arthur Wellington Ross, and, and knew what the pragmatic reasons were for the creation of this park, he also exhibited a kind of aesthetic appreciation for the park. So I think that there's a kind of combination or a blending of pragmatism and, and aesthetics that influenced um, some of the men who were involved in the creation of Stanley Park. You, you also discussed the ways that people attempted to... Um quote, improve nature uh, at Stanley Park and, and how this was attempted throughout the park's history. Can you talk about a number of the ways that um, people have, or, or organizations or governments, tried to improve um, what, what nature was? Sure. Um, this was, again, one of the more surprising elements of my research in this book. Um, uh, the idea of parks and what parks ought to be changes over time uh, from the 19th century up to the present. And so the way in which park board um, uh, commissioners and park engineers and ordinary park users thought about nature in parks uh, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is very different than how we think about parks today. Parks were places not only for the protection and preservation of nature um, when Stanley Park opened, but there were also places that were supposed to exhibit a merger of art with nature. Uh, and so it was expected that uh, the park board would improve the environment of Stanley Park by modifying it through landscape art of various kinds. And so the park board engaged in a series of improvements from the opening of the park in 1888 all the way up to the mid-20th century uh, in the 1950s, adding infrastructure, modifying the forest, creating uh, recreational facilities, all to sort of blend art and nature together to, in order to create a park. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll talk just about the forestry, I think, is one of the most interesting modifications to Stanley Park. Uh, the forest of Stanley Park was, was always the, the primary landscape feature of the park. Um, uh, uh, commentators on the opening of Stanley Park in the late 19th century often talked about the park as a forest. This was the main purpose for its creation, that this was a beautiful example of a northwest coast forest. But beginning around 1910, the forest of Stanley Park started to, to look uh, ugly. 
uh, to observers. And they attributed the, uh, the poor aesthetics of the forest to infestations of insects and fungus uh, that were becoming noticeable by 1910. There were a series of beetle and looper outbreaks in Stanley Park in the 1910s that were defoliating the trees, removing the green cover, and leaving them kind of twig-like with dead tops or, or even killing uh, large uh, acreages of trees in Stanley Park. Certain areas of the park were described as being completely defoliated, completely cleared of trees because of these insect infestations. And uh, ordinary Vancouverites uh, became concerned and wrote to the park board and, and newspapers began to write about this problem. And the park board was encouraged by these park supporters to hire forestry scientists to remedy the problem, to improve the forest. What they saw was a forest being attacked not by human modification, but by natural modification. Insects and fungus and other bugs uh, uh, were, were forces of nature that were creating an aesthetically unpleasing landscape. And so the park board was encouraged to use forestry science as a way to uh, improve the landscape. And in a sense, these forestry scientists became a landscape artist. So a team of entomologists from the Federal Department of Agriculture arrived in Vancouver uh, in 1910 and began a series of studies at Stanley Park um, that uh, lasted for or three or four years. And in 1914, they made um, some recommendations for how to remedy uh, the problem in Stanley Park, how to improve the visual landscape. And they included a series of, of measures that the park board eventually took. The first is that the board was um, uh, encouraged to clear out the, the underbrush in Stanley Park. So when, when you go for a walk on the trails in Stanley Park, you see a lot of plants that grow uh, at the forest floor. But in the beginning of the 20th century, it was a lot denser. There were fallen logs strewn everywhere throughout the forest, very thick undercover. Entomologists believe that this was a breeding ground for insects that eventually went up into the tree cover and killed the trees. So the park board was encouraged to clear away all the dead trees, clear away the underbrush. The second measure was that the park board was encouraged to remove hemlock and spruce trees from Stanley Park. At the beginning of the 20th century, Stanley Park had a much more heterogeneous forest. It was composed of cedar, fir, uh, Douglas fir, hemlock, and spruce. But the entomologists at the time thought that the hemlock and spruce trees were too susceptible to insect infestation and that instead they should be replaced almost exclusively with Douglas fir and cedar. And so the hemlock and spruce trees were cleared out from Stanley Park, and Douglas fir was planted. Over the course of the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s, Stanley Park was almost entirely reforested with Douglas fir. There were, of course, still other tree species, uh, but the park began to become more homogenous in its appearance, and you can see it in photographs of Stanley Park. If you compare pictures of the park in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century to pictures of the park in the 1940s and 50s, the forest in the 1940s and 50s is a lot smoother looking. The tree line has no dead treetops, and the trees are puffier and greener. Um, and in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the trees are skinnier with dead branches and dead tops. The final two measures that these entomologists recommended uh, were that the park board cut the tops of the largest trees off, the dead large trees, because they knew that tourists like to take pictures next to big trees. But when you take a photograph of a dead tree, you can't often see the top. And so they reasoned that they could keep the stumps, but just chop off the tops, and people could still take pictures 
next to these tree bases. And you can see evidence of this in the park still in the present. If you're walking through Stanley Park and you see a very large base of a tree, if you step back seven or eight feet and look up, there's likely not to be a top on that tree. Uh, and so you can take a picture next to it. Then finally, the entomologists recommended that the park board use insecticides to eliminate insects in the park. And so uh, from the 1920s all the way to the 1960s, the park board regularly sprayed Stanley Park with various insecticides from lead arsenic to DDT um, in order to control for uh, insects and to improve the forest, to correct the natural elements of change that created a ragged and aesthetically unpleasing appearance in order to reconstruct the forest to look more like what people expected parks and wilderness to look like. Hmm. Would you say, though, that Stanley Park should be seen um, within sort of an urban environment, within uh, a broader urban space of Vancouver, and not this distinct sort of natural space or wilderness in the sense that, um, and you you have a, an interesting uh, section in your book on this, that urban infrastructure like reservoirs, sewers, pipes, um, and then later the um, causeway and, and First Narrows, um, uh, the, I guess, Lionsgate Bridge, First Narrows Crossing, these were all part of the park um, for much of its history. And so would you say that we need to think, we need to challenge this idea that Stanley Park was this separate entity or space beyond the urban? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Stanley Park is an urban space, um, and it was uh, created as such from its inception at the end of the 19th century. So one of the things I try to do in the book is to show all the different ways in which this natural space, so different from the rest of the city, is very much woven into the urban environment and is actually quite crucial to the urban environment of Vancouver. Um, so as I note in the book, uh, from, uh, from the opening of the park, uh, Stanley Park was being integrated into the infrastructure of Vancouver uh, through the construction of the city's first freshwater pipeline, which crosses First Narrows, underneath First Narrows, and then passes through Stanley Park and across Coal Harbor. So when David Oppenheimer was giving a speech to celebrate the opening of Stanley Park in 1888, there were uh, workers from the Vancouver Waterworks Company building a pipeline through the park and building a roadway through the park to service that pipeline, which today is called Pipeline Road. Um, and so this really illustrates the point that the, though the park is, is often seen as being something opposite of the city, it's in fact very much part of the city. Subsequent to the construction of that pipeline, Stanley Park uh, has been uh, part of the city sewer system. There's a major trunk sewer that runs underneath Stanley Park. Uh, it's also part of the city's transportation infrastructure, as you mentioned. Um, Highway 99 uh, runs through Stanley Park, connecting downtown Vancouver to the Lionsgate Bridge and the Upper Levels Highway. Um, this was built uh, in the 1930s, uh, so there's a highway that bisects Stanley Park. Um, and the park was also integrated into some more unusual urban infrastructure during the First and Second World Wars, uh, Stanley Park was used as uh, sites for uh, gun emplacements for a naval defense of Vancouver's harbor. Uh, so in uh, 1914, uh, two uh, large guns were installed at uh, the uh, point just above Siwash Rock to oversee the entrance to Burrard Inlet uh, in the event of a German uh, attack on Vancouver uh, during the First World War. And similarly, in, uh, in the late 1930s, uh, gun emplacements were installed uh, along the west coast of Stanley Park, particularly at Third Beach and Ferguson Point, uh, 
uh, to guard against naval attack. Uh, so in many ways, uh, Stanley Park uh, is very much part of, of the city of Vancouver. Um, it uh, was a critical uh, factor in terms of the establishment of urban infrastructure. I want to also ask you to talk more specifically about the relationship between um, the economic conditions um, in Vancouver and more broadly across Canada, BC, North America um, during uh, the 1930s and and um, the I guess just leading up I guess Great Depression mm-hmm. leading up to World War II, um, and how the case for the need for uh, a crossing at First Narrows, um, which later became as we know Lionsgate Bridge, how that case was made and and this relationship um, between the economic conditions and um, and why this was seen to be necessary. Yeah, I mean, this is a common refrain in in discussions of environmental policy uh, throughout Canada's uh, 20th century history. Um, The balancing of environmental policy against economic policy and and, and, in a microcosm, Stanley Park's um, experience with the Lionsgate Bridge illustrates that tension. Um, in, In a lot of ways, policymakers from the municipal level, provincial level, federal level, often pit environmental policy against economic policy, and this was certainly true in the 1920s and the 1930s in Vancouver, uh, the economic conditions of the province and the country in a lot of ways influenced um, how infrastructure was developed in Stanley Park, in particular uh, this highway and bridge that ended up being built uh, in the 1930s. The proposal for a bridge to cross First Narrows across Burrard Inlet um, was was a very old idea that went back to the 1890s. Um, property developers on the North Shore had always hoped that a bridge might be constructed at First Narrows, which would provide quick access to Vancouver so that they could sell their property to suburban developers to build houses. Um, but the city had always resisted or deferred this decision um, right up into the 1930s. In fact, in the 1920s, a very major proposal was put together by uh, the municipalities of North Vancouver and West Vancouver uh, in conjunction with private uh, property developers on the North Shore to build a bridge across First Narrows. Um, but any bridge across First Narrows would inevitably get tied up in the politics of the environment of Stanley Park and the value that Vancouver writes. Uh, uh, saw in Stanley Park. And so in the 1920s, there was a referendum to determine whether or not a bridge should be built at First Narrows and a roadway built through Stanley Park to connect Vancouver's road network to the bridge. And voters rejected it. Uh, And they rejected it overwhelmingly uh, because of the impact that that highway would have on the environment of Stanley Park. But a few years later, uh, a second proposal was put forward, very nearly identical to the one in the 1920s, uh, to build a bridge at First Narrows. But the economic conditions had changed dramatically by the 1930s, of course. The economy of Canada and British Columbia had collapsed as part of a broader global uh, uh, depression, known as the Great Depression. Uh, unemployment in British Columbia at its peak in 1933 exceeded 20%, um, and Vancouverites were desperate for jobs. So in the 1930s, uh, new property developers and the North Shore municipalities came back to the city of Vancouver with a proposal to build a bridge. But this time they made the case that the bridge was going to provide jobs for Vancouverites. And Vancouver's mayor at the time, Lewis Taylor, 
very aggressively lobbied on behalf of the bridge and property developers on the basis that this bridge would provide jobs. And so a second referendum was held in 1933, and Vancouverites changed their minds, and they voted in favor of the construction of the Lionsgate Bridge, in spite of the previous apprehensions about the impact it would have on Stanley Park. The result was that a highway was built that bisected Stanley Park into two halves, uh, it cut down over 10 acres of trees to the center of the park, uh, and it continues to structure the shape of Stanley Park. Uh, but beyond that, it completely changed the regional development in Vancouver. West Vancouver went from being a cottage district uh, for people who owned small, uh, modest cottages and who would cross by a ferry to the North Shore to becoming a suburban municipality, uh, to eventually becoming the elite suburban municipality that it is today. Hmm. I want to conclude with uh, a couple of questions, but I want to ask you um, to talk about uh, the Seven Sisters and, and what they were. Sure. So the, the Seven Sisters were a cluster of very tall trees uh, in Stanley Park, located just north of Lost Lagoon. Um, if you go into Stanley Park today, you can see where they used to be. There's a plaque that commemorates their existence uh, with a couple of photographs of what they looked like. These were extremely popular uh, uh, features of Stanley Park, and they were destinations for tourists. They were featured in tourist pamphlets. They were featured on every map of Stanley Park. Um, and it was a place where you could go and really uh, revel in the immensity of the Northwest Coast Forest. But the Seven Sisters are a really good example of the dissonance between um, ideas of nature and the realities of nature in parks. Um, they were often described as beautiful monuments um, that far exceeded the monuments of churches and cathedrals in Europe. But the trees weren't monuments, they were trees. Uh, and eventually they died. Uh, beginning in the 1950s, parts of the trees began to fall, branches began to fall off the top, the tops began to fall over, and bark began to fall down, and the park board had to rope off the area to keep people from getting hit by the falling debris. And eventually they were taken down for safety reasons uh, in the 1960s after a few of them had fallen over. And it really illustrated that, that uh, idea that, that um, parks are not uh, preserved pieces of the past, but in fact nature itself has its own past that changes over time. Um, and this was sort of played out across the entirety of Stanley Park, I think, over the course of the 20th century. The forestry policies of the park board in the 20th century uh, were very similar to the policies applied to the Seven Sisters. They tried to preserve these trees to make it look like they were still living so people could go and take pictures with them. And it reinforced this idea that the park itself was a preserved piece of the past um, and made it very difficult for people to see the history of the park in its landscape. Um, and so what the park board did was it, it made changes to the landscape of the forest uh, whenever it was disturbed. And the, the primary agent of natural disturbance on a northwest coast forest is wind throw. Um, so Vancouver, over the course of its 20th century history, was subject to dozens and dozens of windstorms, um, and many of which blew down thousands of trees in Standard Park. There were three major storms in the 20th century, one in 1901, one in 1934, and one in 1962 that blew down uh, tons of trees in Stanley Park that dramatically transformed the landscape. In 1901, the park board did almost nothing after the storm. They cleaned up some of the trails and the roadways, but they didn't have uh, either the technological capacity or the resources to, to clean up the forest and to replant it. 
But in 1934, the Park Board did have those resources, and it set out on a massive forest restoration program to reconstruct the forest of Stanley Park. And that program was so convincing that by 1962, when Typhoon Frida swept through Vancouver and blew down the forest of Stanley Park again, it seems as though Vancouver residents had completely forgotten that this had occurred just a generation earlier. And so the response in 1962 was very different than the response to the storm in 1934. Instead of seeking uh, publicly to rejuvenate the forest and to replant it, Vancouver has mourned the loss of nature in Stanley Park, that the park had been irreparably damaged. And the park board uh, had to carry out its restoration work almost in secret uh, to avoid backlash from those who would uh, accuse the park board of committing some kind of vandalism against Stanley Park for replanting its forest or clearing away the forest debris. It really illustrates this um, intersection between ideas of nature but also popular memory of nature, the way we uh, remember um, the past of a natural environment is very different from its actual history. And so one of the things I think um, is evident in the history of Stanley Park is that memory more so than history structures our understandings of place, our personal experiences, as well as what we popular believe, popularly believe to be true about the past of a natural landscape has much more influence on how we think about it than its actual history. Then if that's the case, how do you, how do you think we should um, negotiate these um, divergence, sort of divergences between public memory versus the actual history? And you conclude with a chapter called, your conclusion um, in your book is called Reconciliation with Disturbance. And I guess for you personally, how do you think um, we should think about Stanley Park and, and tr- try to make sense of what went on and, and um, some of these, these broader themes that we've discussed? Well, I think it comes back to those nature myths that we discussed, um, that I think policy in terms of the administration of this park becomes constrained by uh, nature myths, the idea that parks are supposed to represent a pre-colonial wilderness. They're supposed to represent what Vancouver, or Stanley Park is supposed to represent what Vancouver looked like before it became a city, before it was colonized by Europeans. Um, and, of course, we know that those the, the, that's an unrealistic vision, that there never was uh, a primeval landscape untouched by humans. Instead, what I write in my conclusion is that we need to develop policy that can reconcile um, some of the unruly and, and unpredictable elements of, of our ecology on the northwest coast. Uh, it's an ecology that's shaped profoundly by disturbance, as all ecosystems are. Um, forests change. They, uh, they burn, they get blown down, they get eaten by insects, uh, they get changed by humans. We cut them down, uh, sometimes we burn them, sometimes we reshape them. Uh, and I think if, we're to, if we are to, to, to live with Stanley Park as a part of our city, um, we need to be able to live with disturbance in its environment and to be able to incorporate disturbance into our policy. And I think this has been true of the way in which the Park Board responded to uh, the storms that uh, blew down the forest to Stanley Park in 2006. Um, the new forest management plan for Stanley Park incorporates um, expectation for future storms and also incorporates disturbance zones within the park where blown down trees are permitted to rot uh, and permitted to sort of rejuvenate soil nutrients and to rejuvenate uh, without um, heavy human uh, intervention. And I think this, this both has um, 
uh, sort of a very powerful ecological rationale uh, for permitting uh, that kind of rejuvenation, but also uh, um, a public rationale in terms of illustrating the variability uh, of this forest. And the best example of this is there's a tree right at the entrance to Stanley Park uh, off of Georgia Street, and it's from the storm. It's tipped over on its side, and you'll often see people climbing it and taking pictures. Um, and in a way, that tree, that tipped over tree, is a kind of monument to the storm of 2006. Um, and it's a reminder to Vancouverites, I think, of, um, of the variability of the forest and that Vancouver... Uh, the city itself has changed very significantly over the course of its history, uh, and the park uh, has changed very significantly and will likely uh, change in the future. You, among other um, scholars, including Jean Barman and uh, Renisa Mawani, have written about sort of the, the counter-histories um, to Stanley Park and have been um, very diligent, diligent about unpacking those histories and um, sort of telling these 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 histories that are not um, perhaps within a popular within the popular narrative of Stanley Park. You were one of the invited speakers to the 125th anniversary celebrations. Do you find that there's still um, still a persistence of of um, retelling and continuing to use these popular narratives of Stanley Park and these tropes that exist, um, or is there sort of an acceptance and willingness? Uh, to move on, and I guess I'm not just specifically referring to sort of non-human and ecological disturbances, but um, the the colonial uh, history and displacement um, that occurred to, to in the making of Stanley Park as well. Well, I mean, I think uh, popular memory is beginning to change. Um, the ideas about parks and Vancouverites' ideas about Stanley Park are structured uh, by forces that go well beyond the city and. Uh, are questions of broader cultural ideas of, of Euro-Canadians and Euro-Americans um, even into the 21st century. But I think within the city itself, the uh, colonial history of Vancouver is becoming more popularized. Um, the presence of Aboriginal people uh, within Stanley Park is being reintegrated beyond the totem poles. Um, uh, and the history of the families that lived in Stanley Park is now being, uh, I believe, integrated in some way in some kind of plaque or commemoration. And then, of course, uh, the writing of historians. I mean, Jean Barman has uh, done incredible work to popularize the story of the people who lived in Stanley Park, such that I think um, that it's, it, it's, it's quite uh, well known, uh, at least to uh, Vancouverites who, who know even a little bit about Stanley Park. That's a, a part of its history that's becoming more popularly known, I think. Um, and then I hope that my book can also contribute to um, uh, the way in which we think about uh, this part of Vancouver, because of course I think that Stanley Park has been uh, has played a really uh, prominent role in the development of Vancouver itself, and that to understand the history of Vancouver, we need to know uh, the history of this park um, throughout the course of the entirety of its history, because a lot of stuff happened uh, in conjunction with developments uh, in Vancouver itself. Hmm. For you personally, what um, what significance does Stanley Park hold for you? Um, so I grew up in the Lower Mainland. I grew up in Burnaby, and I lived in the West End for four years. Um, I lived in an apartment uh, just at the Nelson Street entrance to Stanley Park. So I had a, a fairly common interaction with Stanley Park. I you know, run on the seawall or around Lost Lagoon. Um, uh, but my personal interest in it really is, is related to my interest in the history of Vancouver. Um, I think Vancouver is one of the most 
uh, historically interesting cities uh, in Canada. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I really do think that uh, Stanley Park um, sort of lies uh, at the heart of understanding its development, particularly the development of its downtown. Um, and so looking at the history of Stanley Park in many ways for me was a way to understand the history of, of Vancouver in, in new ways. Um, and to understand my own experiences um, as a regular park user as well and where I fit uh, into that history uh, in the present. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And you're listening to The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And if you missed any part of the program, check it out as a podcast at thecityfm.org. This is um, part three in the last installment of our series, Making Stanley Park, uh, critically reflecting on the 125th anniversary of Stanley Park. And again, check that series out at thecityfm.org. You can find... Uh, links to download um, the podcasts um, off of iTunes and off of the CITR website as well. So again, thecityfm.org. Follow the program on Facebook, uh, and that's by searching The City uh, Critical Urban Discussions, and also uh, follow us on Twitter, and that's the city underscore FM. I'm Andy Longhurst. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. Uh, this is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. here on CITR 101.9 FM live and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's in Burnaby, and that's also cjsf.ca. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.